This special episode of New Retina Radio is supported by Genentech, which is responsible for its content. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we are going to talk about the recently FDA-approved innovative drug delivery system for the treatment of neovascular AMD and experiences with the clinical development program. My name is Dr. John Kitchens from Retina Associates of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky, and I am joined today by Dr. Dante Piramici, a retina specialist with California Retina Consultants and Retina Consultants of America. Dante, welcome to the podcast. John, I'm glad to be on to chat with you. Before we discuss the treatment landscape for neovascular AMD, we'll go over the indication statement and boxed warning for the new drug delivery system we will be discussing in this podcast, Susfimo. Susfimo, ranibizumab injection, is indicated for the treatment of patients with neovascular or wet age-related macular degeneration who have previously responded to at least two intravitreal injections of a vascular endothelial growth factor or VEGF inhibitor medication. The Sasfimo implant has been associated with a threefold higher rate of endophthalmitis than monthly intravitreal injections of ranibizumab. Many of these events were associated with conjunctival retractions or erosions. Appropriate conjunctiva management and early detection with surgical repair of conjunctival retractions or erosions may reduce the risk of endophthalmitis. In clinical trials, 2% of patients receiving a ranibizumab implant experience at least one episode of endophthalmitis. So Dante, can you give us a brief overview of the current treatments for neovascular AMD? Well, John, you know, anti-VEGF therapy has now really been our state of the art for probably close to the last 20 years. And it's really done a lot for our patients with neovascular AMD. So the treatments today is now intravitreal injection of anti-VEGF agents in the eyes for patients with neovascular AMD. So Dante, we have some phase three clinical trials that show visual gains with anti-VEGF therapy, but in many cases, those gains aren't maintained after the studies or, or really in the real world, there's just a disconnect. And where is that? What is the disconnect between the results we get in the clinical trials and in the real-world results that we're seeing out in practice. That's right, John. I mean, we, we have seen in these clinical trials when patients are part of the trial and they're getting regular therapy and they're coming in for their appointments, patients do very well with these anti-VEGF therapies. When the trials are over or in the real-world situation, when patients are just being treated in clinical practice, Oftentimes we don't achieve these same results or maintain the visual gains that we saw initially. It seems that part of the reason is that we're just not getting enough treatment in the long run. We start off pretty well, and we see this in the real world data. Patients seem to do fairly well, and we've seen this in things like the Vestrum data and uh, some of the other real world databases that patients do pretty well initially but then if we look over the year or two, they're getting far fewer therapies than the clinical trials would have indicated. And, and because of that, those initial gains aren't always maintained in those patients. You know, Dante, I think it took us a little bit of time to realize that, but I think our specialty is waking up to that. In fact, the American Society of Retina Specialists 22nd Annual Preferences and Trends Survey, or PATS survey, uh, discussed here, by the way, with their permission, found that the top two unmet needs of retina specialists uh, are really how to reduce treatment burden and ensure long-acting consistent treatment delivery. 
They had some other concerns around new treatment mechanisms of action, improved efficacy, and improved safety. So Dante, we've seen that there is a perceived need by retina specialists to have a long-acting, consistent treatment delivery. Can you talk to us a little bit about what SUSVIMO is? SUSVIMO is an innovative device. It's an intraocular, long-acting port delivery system that really enables continuous delivery of ranibizumab into the vitreous cavity. It's also refillable, and uh, we place it surgically in the operating room uh, as an outpatient surgical procedure, but it can be refilled multiple times as an in-office procedure, and uh, it is refilled approximately every six months. Sesfimo dispenses currently a customized formulation of ranibizumab over time that works really by passive diffusion. It, uh, according to fixed law, uh, first order kinetics, it just goes down a concentration gradient into the vitreous cavity, and it does allow for controlled, continuous delivery of the drug over time. That's a great description, Dante. And I would point our listeners to the uh, podcast where we talked to Gene Dewan and Tony Adamus about more specifics as far as the design of SUSVIMO. Dante, what we really wanted to have you on tonight to talk mostly about are the clinical studies that led to the approval of SUSVIMO. Can you walk us through the clinical trials from phase one all the way through phase three? I'd love to, John. And this is a long time in the coming, actually. Like most new products. It takes time to develop these. And, you know, the phase one trial was in a limited number of patients with neovascular AND, and it was really conducted with a device prototype for a proof of concept testing. I really wanted to just show that a device like this could work and could continuously deliver uh, an anti-VEGF in the eye. Subsequent to that, you know, there were some technical improvements that were made to make sure the device was more reliable, durable, and could be, we could undergo drug exchange uh, more conveniently. So after that was worked out, the phase two trial, which was called the ladder trial, this was a multi-center randomized trial, it was an intervention, and it was a dose-ranging active control study that examined it, examined SESVIMO compared to monthly intravitreal ranibizumab injections. The primary outcome or primary endpoint of the uh, of the latter trial was the time to first refill. So they wanted to see how long the device could go before needing a refill. And there were specific refill criteria that had to be met before a refill could be undertaken. So uh, John, learning from the latter trial helped to optimize both the surgical methods for sesvimo insertion and the appropriate dose leading to the phase three clinical trial, Archway. And Dante, you're referring to the Archway study, the, the multi-center open-label phase three study, really looking at the efficacy and safety of SESIMO. Talk to us a little bit about the results of that study. Yeah, as you mentioned, this was a phase three multi-center randomized clinical trial. It was really a non-inferior equivalent trial looking at the high-dose SESIMO uh, in patients with neovascular AMD. And I, and I said, should, we should probably mention, these are not patients that are naive to anti-VEGF therapy. The patients that are getting the SUSVIMO are patients who have already been treated, and they had to have had a diagnosis of neovascular AMD and receive anti-VEGF therapy within the last nine months. The primary endpoint of this trial was the change in best corrected visual acuity score averaged over weeks 36 to 40. 
The results of the study, uh, drum roll, was that Susvimo was not inferior and equivalent to the intravitreal injections of ranibizumab administered every four weeks. On average, between weeks 36 to 40, patients in the Susvimo group gained about 0.2 letters and in the ranibizumab group, 0.5. And again, we wouldn't expect a lot of gain in visual acuity because these are patients who have been treated prior to the enrollment in the trial. What we're really hoping for is to maintain the visual acuity in an equivalent manner to the monthly intravitreal injections. And that's what was shown. Um, during the 24, first 24 weeks or six months, 98% of the SUSBMO patients assessed for a supplemental injection. So they could receive additional injections if needed before six months, but 98% of the patients did not need a supplemental injection, while 1.6% of the patients did receive another injection, an intravitreal injection as supplement in this group. So Dante, you really nicely covered the primary outcomes of the Archway study from a visual standpoint. What has been your individual experience with your patients? Yeah, I think my uh, experience has been very similar to the experience of the overall results. We ended up with, uh, you know, very stable visual acuity over the time course of the trial in these patients. Now, one of the things we always have to talk about when we're talking about any new technique, particularly a surgical technique, is safety. And safety profile read. So Dante, talk to us just in general about some of the safety signals from Archway study. The implant itself, the susfemo implant in the Archway trial was associated with a threefold higher rate of endophthalmitis than monthly intravitreal injections. The most common ocular adverse events of special interest through weeks 40 were generally non-serious conjunctival blood formations that occurred in about 6.5% of the patients with the susfemo. Another adverse event of special interest through week 40 was the vitreous hemorrhage, as I mentioned. And again, this was in 5% of the patients. 2.4% of the patients in the ranibizumab also experienced a vitreous hemorrhage. So it does happen even with our intravitreal injections in some patients. And we've seen this in our clinics as well. Two other ocular adverse events of note was that one patient taking the cisfemal had irreversible vision loss. And this was because of an infection from... Uh, uh, enterococci fecalis endophthalmitis. And there was a one patient who was given the Susvimo uh, device that experienced a device dislocation where it dislocated into the vitreous cavity during a refill procedure. None of the serious non-ocular adverse events were suspected to be related to the study treatment and uh, were generally similar between the groups. So Dante, let's talk a little bit specifically about conjunctival retraction. How does it occur and is it preventable? So, you know, what we've, what we've seen and what we've learned from this is how important it is to dissect down the conjunctiva and tenons, to do this in the two-layered approach. And then when we're closing at the end of the surgical procedure, it's very important to make sure that the device is closed away from the device itself. And we use a scleral anchoring suture and close in a two-layer fashion. So, you know, as retina specialists, we're often in and out of there, and the conjunctiva and sclera is something that's just sort of secondary, and most of the time we don't even suture anymore. I think we need to go back and be very meticulous about these points in the procedure because this can lead not only to the exposure of the implant 
but it can lead to endophthalmitis. This is probably the most feared complication that we have following this procedure. And again, with meticulous surgical technique, I think we can further reduce the chance of this and allow this device to be maintained for a long period of time. I'd like to point out two really key things here. First of all, early identification of any conjunctival retraction as it's beginning can in many cases be correctable and without having to remove the device. You can go back and research the conjunctiva and tenons and really reduce the risk of infection. I've never been a part of a study that had so much diligence put into the surgical technique. Every time I would do one of these patient surgeries in the archway study, my Genentech SDS or SDL person would be right there and would have so much great feedback from my previous cases. Just an FYI, the SDL helped to support surgeries in the clinical trials and moving forward, the Genentech SDS will support Susvimo Surgical Excellence Academy. So Dante, what was your experience in the clinical trials with doing these surgeries and how really Genentech approached this? Yeah, I think it was done very well. And there's no doubt that to make this a successful drug delivery device, it's imperative that it's put in meticulously um, and done right and done in a very standard fashion. So, you know, from the clinical trial standpoint, everything was very standardized. Training was done. Training was done with videos. There was live training done with uh, virtual reality simulators. And I actually got a chance to go to Germany and help them develop these simulators uh, before they were used. And it was really quite an ordeal. And it was a lot of investment that went into these devices. And to be honest with you, they're relatively lifelike. I mean, you can use this 3D virtual reality simulation of the surgical procedure to practice um, the steps. You can use the refill uh, virtual reality device, which I think is very helpful. So there was a lot of attention to training people. That was lectures. There were videos. There was um, a blue eye, a, an artificial eye that could be used, and then the virtual reality training. But you bring up a point, these surgical device liaisons, these are people who are very knowledgeable about the OR. One of the people was my surgical scrub at Tech. Actually, I thought it was a good opportunity for him. He had been in uh, doing vitreoretinal surgery for many, many years, and he went and became an SDL. So these people would come to the OR with you. They'd be there with you prior to go over the details. And they would train not only me, but train the staff and, and go through every step. And I think this is, has been key to the success because one of the things we saw in both of these trials is that many of the patients enrolled in the trials, the surgery was the surgeon's first or second surgery. So you had to be right up on the learning curve from the beginning. And that means preparation before. Mark Goldberg was my uh, chief and chairman for many years, and he had the five P's, prior planning prevents poor performance. And with the uh, with this device, that's very important. You don't just go in there with the idea you're going to take a look at the manual and pop it in. You're really going to need to do some homework before, some simulator work, and uh, and then have the SDL person in the operating with you room with you. And I think that this is going to make it a, an effective and a successful procedure from the first one you do to the hundredth one you do. You know, and I think, I think as we learned a lot through the clinical trials and every time I felt like I did a better surgery each time because I learned from my last surgery and I felt like there were 15 or 20 people that would watch my surgical video and dissect it 
with the advice that Dan, our SDL, would come back in and give me. Uh, but in a similar way, Genentech has really been able to dial in a unique training program. And we talked to Carl and Alexandra a bit about this, but their training program for future surgeons of Susimo is going to include e-modules on surgical techniques, including the implant, the initial fill, refill, exchange, even explantation if you have to do it, some peer-led uh, or some peer faculty-led didactic teaching sessions. Um, we're going to talk, we're going to have SDS, which is kind of like your surgical device liaison, uh, but your surgical device specialist. This is once it's released, uh, that will do in-service training and hands-on with simulation, step-by-step guidance of the surgical procedure, a checklist in the OR. I mean, it just goes on and on support for your OR staff on what needs to be done to get the device ready, all the, uh, equipment needed. And Dante, you've been really influential, as you mentioned, in some of the development of this training, not only for the clinical trials, but talk to me about some of the things that you think are really unique uh, to this technique. Well, I, you know, like I said, I, you know, we're vitreoretinal surgeons and we often do very complex interocular surgeries and we sort of have to take a step back with this procedure now. We're operating more on the outside of the eye. We're, we're, we're more like our glaucoma colleagues. And we have to think of it like that, where we're meticulously dissecting the conjunctiva. We're doing a very precise cut down of the sclera, measuring, cauterizing, hemostasis is important, entering the eye, you know, precisely and get, and, and putting the implant in and then closing very meticulously is very, is important. And I think that, you know, it's a little bit of a change in mindset from what we generally do, but I think we all have the skill to do this. I think we have to just become comfortable with the techniques and think about this, that every step builds on itself. And even from the exposure of the eye, I find a lot of people struggle because the eye isn't exposed enough that they can get in there and do the dissection properly. So putting a retraction suture in the beginning can make take a difficult case and make it pretty straightforward. So you know, as I, we often talk about when we're training residents or fellows is that, you know, even draping a patient from every step can either build on itself for a good outcome or tear you down for a bad outcome. So I think this technique we have to think about in that fashion. So Dante, let's say a friend or colleague that's never done uh, Susvimo calls you up and says, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What advice do you have for me? How long is it going to take me to master this technique? What are the two things you would tell that person as far as should they do it? What can they expect? And how long will it take them to become fairly proficient with this? I think this is a technique that most of all the retina specialists can be pretty comfortable with with time. I think it's not something you're going to learn right away. And what I would tell them is that do a lot of preparation up front. Do everything you can. Watch the videos. You know, go to the didactics you know, uh, do the simulation if you can and, 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 and greet the SDL, the surgical liaison as a, as a partner in this. I mean, sometimes we get drug reps in the OR and they're telling us this, that, and the other, and we know better. But in this, in this case, this person is going to have a lot of experience with this device. They're going to have seen a lot of it. They're going to have seen a lot of problems. So lean on them a little bit and let them, Teach your staff too, because I think when, when the SDL comes in and the staff has buy-in, 
then they really, they enjoy the procedure. They feel like they're learning something and they, they take this surgical device liaison person and they really see them as part of the team now, not just someone in there trying to sell you something, but somebody who's there to make this a good experience, to make you learn more and to keep you out of trouble. I agree completely. I think our, our staff engagement in the clinical trials was absolutely great. They were so excited that we were participating in a study that was so innovative and could really change the experience around anti-VEGF therapy for patients. Speaking of experience, you've had great experience with Susvimo and your patients. Who's the best candidate patient-wise for Susvimo? Yeah, this is a question. I've heard a, a couple of answers. I'll give you what I think. I mean, first of all, these are not naive patients. You're not going to see someone with new wet AMD and say, hey, I'm in the OR tomorrow. Let's put in this device. This is going to be for patients who've shown a response to anti-VEGF therapy. We're probably going to want to get a flavor for how often does this patient really going to need the anti-VEGF therapy? If they're going to need it every three or four months, maybe they don't want the device. But on the other hand, if it's someone who needs it relatively frequently and is a patient who this they seem to think that this might be a nice alternative for them, then I think that that's going to be the kind of patient. Patient who responds to anti-VEGF therapy, but is needing relative frequent injections, maybe every month or two, or it could be even longer if, the, if this seems like something for them. It's not for the patient who doesn't respond to anti-VEGF therapy. I don't see this as an alternative. If something's not working right with anti-VEGF therapy on a frequent basis, then we need to think about if we have the right diagnosis. And, and this is not an alternative for the non-responding patient. This is for a responsive patient who wants to try an alternative to the monthly individual injections. And as far as predicted response to this, and you've really covered this nicely with your discussion mainly of Archway, should we expect responses on par with monthly anti-VEGF therapy? Well, based on the trial results, I think that, you know, we really probably should. I mean, I think that we should expect similar visual results. We saw that in the latter trial, and it was confirmed in the Archway trial as well. I really appreciate you coming on, Dante. Thank you so much. And for all of you listening to this podcast on the Clinical Development Program for SUSVMO for the Treatment of Vascular AMD, I would really encourage you, if you haven't heard the previous podcast where we talked to Gene Dewan and Tony Adamus as they discussed the development of the port delivery system, as well as Carl O and Alexandra Rachaskaya discussing their perspectives and experiences on the training program for the device, please tune into those episodes because they are equally as good as Dante's podcast tonight. Dante, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Please listen carefully to the following important safety information. Susfemo is contraindicated in patients with ocular or periocular infections, active intraocular inflammation, or hypersensitivity to ranibizumab products or any of the excipients in Susfemo. The Susfemo implant and or implant-related procedures have been associated with endophthalmitis, rheumatogenous retinal detachment, implant dislocation, septum dislodgement, vitreous hemorrhage, conjunctival erosion, conjunctival retraction, and conjunctival blebs. Patients should be instructed to report any signs or symptoms that could be associated with these events without delay. 
In some cases, these events can present asymptomatically. The implant and the tissue overlying the implant flange should be monitored routinely following the implant insertion and refill exchange procedures to permit early medical or surgical intervention as necessary. Special precautions need to be taken when handling sosphemo components. In the active comparator period of controlled clinical trials, the ranibizumab implant has been associated with a threefold higher rate of endophthalmitis than monthly intravitreal injections of ranibizumab. 1.7% in the sesfimo arm versus 0.5% in the intravitreal arm. When including extension phases of clinical trials, 2% or 11 of 555 of patients receiving the ranibizumab implant experienced an episode of endophthalmitis. Reports occurred between day 5 and day 853 with the median of day 173. Many, but not all, of the cases of endophthalmitis reported a preceding or concurrent conjunctival retraction or erosion event. Endophthalmitis should be treated promptly in an effort to reduce the risk of vision loss and maximize recovery. The sesfimo dose or refill exchange should be delayed until resolution of endophthalmitis. Patients should not have an active or suspected ocular or periocular infection or severe systemic infection at the time of any sesfimo implant or refill procedure. Appropriate intraoperative handling followed by secure closure of the conjunctiva and tenons capsule and early detection and surgical repair of conjunctival erosions or retractions may reduce the risk of endophthalmitis. Regmatogenous retinal detachments have occurred in clinical trials of sesfimo and may result in vision loss. Regmatogenous retinal detachments should be promptly treated with an intervention, for example, pneumatic retinopexy, vitrectomy, or laser photocoagulation. The sesfimo dose or refill exchange should be delayed in the presence of a retinal detachment or retinal break. Careful evaluation of the retinal periphery is recommended to be performed and any suspected areas of abnormal vitreoretinal adhesion or retinal breaks should be treated before inserting the implant in the eye. In clinical trials, the device dislocated or subluxated into the vitreous cavity or extended outside the vitreous cavity into or beyond the subconjunctival space. Device dislocation requires urgent surgical intervention. Strict adherence to the scleral incision length and appropriate targeting of the pars plana during laser ablation may reduce the risk of implant dislocation. In clinical trials, a type of implant damage where the septum has dislodged into the implant body has been reported. Perform a dilated slit lamp exam and or dilated indirect ophthalmoscopy to inspect the implant in the vitreous cavity through the pupil prior to and after the refill exchange procedure to identify if septum dislodgement has occurred. Discontinue treatment with sesfimo following septum dislodgement and consider implant removal should the benefit of the removal procedure outweigh the risk. Appropriate handling and insertion of the refill needle into the septum while avoiding any twisting and or rotation is required to minimize the risk of septum dislodgement. Vitreous hemorrhages may result in temporary vision loss. Victrectomy may be needed in the case of non-clearing vitreous hemorrhage. In clinical trials of sesfimo, including extension phases, vitreous hemorrhages were reported in 5.2% or 23 of 443 of patients receiving sesfimo. 
The majority of these hemorrhages occurred within the first postoperative month following surgical implantation, and the majority of vitreous hemorrhages resolved spontaneously. Patients on antithrombotic medication, for example, oral anticoagulants, aspirin, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, may be at increased risk of vitreous hemorrhage. Antithrombotic medications are recommended to be temporarily interrupted prior to the implant insertion procedure. The Sostemo dose or refill exchange should be delayed in the event of site-threatening vitreous hemorrhage. The use of PARS plana laser ablation and scleral cauterization should be performed to reduce the risk of vitreous hemorrhage. A conjunctival erosion is a full thickness degradation or breakdown of the conjunctiva in the area of the implant flange. A conjunctival retraction is a recession or opening of the limbal and or radial peritomy. Conjunctival erosions or retractions have been associated with an increased risk of endophthalmitis, especially if the implant becomes exposed. Surgical intervention, for example, conjunctival or tenon's capsule repair, is recommended to be performed in cases of conjunctival erosion or retraction with or without exposure of the implant flange. In clinical trials of Sysfemo, including extension phases, 3.6% or 16 of 443 of patients receiving Sysfemo reported conjunctival erosion in 1.6% or 7 of 443 of patients receiving Sosfema reported conjunctival retraction in the study I. Appropriate intraoperative handling of the conjunctiva and tenens capsule to preserve tissue integrity and secure closure of peritomy while ensuring placement of sutures away from implant edge may reduce the risk of conjunctival erosion or retraction. The implant and the tissue overlying the implant flange should be monitored routinely following the implant insertion. A conjunctival bleb is an encapsulated elevation of the conjunctiva above the implant flange, which may be secondary to subconjunctival thickening or fluid. Conjunctival blebs may require surgical management to avoid further complications, especially if the implant septum is no longer identifiable due to the conjunctival bleb. In clinical trials of Sustemo, including extension phases, 5.9% or 26 of 443 of patients receiving Sustemo reported conjunctival bleb or conjunctival filtering bleb leak in the study eye. Strict adherence to the scleral incision length, appropriate intraoperative handling of the conjunctiva and tenens capsule to preserve tissue integrity and secure closure of peritomy and proper seating of the refill needle during refill exchange procedures may reduce the risk of conjunctival blood. Visual acuity was decreased by an average of four letters in the first postoperative month and an average of two letters in the second postoperative month following initial implantation of Sosfemo. Minimize air bubbles within the implant reservoir as they may cause slower drug release. During the initial fill procedure, if an air bubble is present, it must be no larger than one-third of the widest diameter of the implant. If excess air is observed after initial fill, do not use the implant. During the refill exchange procedure, if excess air is present in the syringe and needle, do not use the syringe and needle. If excess air bubbles are observed after the refill exchange procedure, consider repeating the refill exchange procedure.
Use caution when performing ophthalmic procedures that may cause deflection of the implant and subsequent injury. For example, B-scan ophthalmic ultrasound, scleral depression, or gonioscopy. In the neovascular AMD archway study following the Sosimo initial fill and implant insertion, refill, and implant removal, if necessary, procedures up to the week 40, the most common or greater than or equal to 10%, adverse reactions up to week 40 were conjunctival hemorrhage in 72%, conjunctival hyperemia in 26%, iritis in 23%, and eye pain in 10%. Females of reproductive potential should use effective contraception during treatment with Sosimo and for at least 12 months after the last dose of Sosimo. No studies on the effects of ranibizumab on fertility have been conducted, and it is not known whether ranibizumab can affect reproduction capacity. Based on the anti-VEGF mechanism of action for ranibizumab, treatment with Sosimo may pose a risk to reproductive capacity. You may report side effects to the FDA at 800-FDA-1088 or www.fda.gov backslash medwatch. You may also report side effects to Genentech at 888-835-2555. Please see additional important safety information in the full Sosimo prescribing information, including box warning.